on the mount, and you remember where we've been. Uh, we know that Jesus is speaking on a mountain, just like Moses uh, would speak on a mountain to deliver the law. And Jesus, in a sense, is sort of delivering his law. Although what we saw last week is uh, he, Jesus has a close relationship with the Old Testament law. We talked about that in 517 through 20. Uh, really, the Beatitudes and the salt and light metaphor are the introduction to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Beatitudes describe the character of disciples, the character uh, disciples will have and will act in this life, even during affliction, even during persecution. The, the good life is following Christ and all of what that means in terms of being poor in spirit, of mourning over sin and its effects in the world, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. We also saw kind of the salt and light idea of mission. Uh, Jesus' disciples, those who have repented, they've turned from allegiance from sin and self to Christ to follow him as king. There's a mission to be salt and to be lights, to, uh, to manifest their righteous deeds, the righteous deeds that uh, the Sermon on the Mount are, is describing in following Christ, to manifest those to a watching world that people, uh, the, those who watch on, might see that these are those who their righteousness is sourced in God, that they have a true changed life because what of Christ, the King, and what God has done in their lives, and they are manifesting that in their works. And then last week, we entered the body of the sermon. Remember, we said that 5, 17 through 20 and um, chapter, 7 through, uh, chapter 7, verse 12, they form bookends to that body of the sermon, uh, of Jesus' address, his discourse. And what we looked at in 5.17 through 20 last week was sort of an introduction to that body and really to talking about uh, superior righteousness. Uh, he talked about, Jesus talked about uh, the righteousness, uh, uh, even, even in the sense of, I'm not coming to abolish the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it, to actualize all the content that is in the Old Testament. And that includes predictions, patterns, events. Really, it means actualizing all of history, but it also means actualizing the righteousness that is predicted of the people who will follow the, mess, the Messiah, the Messianic King, which means a continuity even with the Old Testament law. Even in Christ's disciples, there's a continuity with the Old Testament law in the sense that though the application may change, we can eat bacon, but the heart, the heart of the law the principle that reflects God's eternal moral character is ongoing, is ongoing. And that's what he means when he talked about, you need a righteousness superior, the one that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, those who only have an external righteousness, but don't have a righteousness and obedience from the, from the heart. The thing, the law was always supposed to drive you to obedience from the heart. It was always supposed to be relationship with God that drives obedience and so Jesus' disciples must have a superior righteousness to that of the scribes and Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, those who are truly have repented and trust themselves, uh, turned their allegiance from sin and self and entrusted themselves to Christ and to God, those who are members of the new covenant have the Spirit dwelling in their hearts to cause them to obey. They're caused to become new trees, so to speak, to use the tree metaphor, who will bear good fruit, the good fruit of a superior righteousness, of a righteous obedience from the heart. 
And we said that in that sense, you can still, even as a believer, look back and you should look back to the Old Testament law, not because you're under that covenant, but because that law reflects God's character. And we as disciples can look to it, can look to the underlying principle and can obey that command from the heart because of how Jesus has worked by giving us his spirit in our hearts to obey from the heart. You might ask the question, well, what does that look like to look at an Old Testament command and to obey that command from the heart? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives us six examples, six examples of what does that look like to do that. And so we're going to look at the first three of those examples this morning. And so our big idea for this morning and, uh, is this, what Jesus is getting us to look at is this, obey God's law concerning murder, adultery, and divorce from the heart. Obey God's law concerning murder, adultery, and divorce from the heart. So let's jump into the text at verse 21, and verses 21 through 26 are all are our first example, and our first example deals with what does it look like to, to not murder from the heart? Do not murder from the heart. What does that look like? So let's look at verse 21. You have heard, now pause right there, because it's important to remember one thing. All of these examples, uh, G- it is not Jesus versus Moses. We said that last week. This is not Jesus versus Moses. This is Jesus versus the interpretation of Moses by the scribes and Pharisees. So you have to remember that in Jesus' day, the way you heard God's word was by going to the synagogue. You would hear it uh, read and then expounded upon by the scribes and the Pharisees. So really, uh, if you wanted to know anything about God's word, you would hear, you would go and you would hear uh, from the scribes and Pharisees, uh, others too, but predominantly them, they had a key role in that. Uh, You would hear not only the reading of the law, but the explanation of it, which means that the disciples and really that culture at large had been informed uh, by what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching. And that's what that little phrase you have heard reminds us of. They're being taught and they're being taught by the scribes and Pharisees. You've heard that it was said to those of old. Now that phrase, it was said to those of old, now we're talking about scripture. So you've got the teacher, the one who's teaching you, but he is teaching a scribe or Pharisee on based on the letter of the law. What does the letter of the law say? You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The idea of the judgment here, uh, you would have cases where, and there could be a dispute, uh, did that person, was it premeditated murder or was it manslaughter? And so uh, there could be some dispute, but the person who's in question, the the suspect, so to speak, uh, would stand before a local council to give judgment on that person. Uh, They would, if he had committed murder, then they would carry out justice. And so that's what the letter of the law essentially said in the Old Testament, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, that's pretty straightforward. If you're just looking on the surface of it, if you're just looking at the letter of the law, don't murder. And if you do, you're going to be liable to judgment. But then see what Jesus says. He introduced a contrast. He introduced a contrast with the, just the mere external and drives to the heart. Verse 22. But I say to you, You see that contrast. I say to you, I'm drawing attention to this, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. 
Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. So you see the consequence is the same, liable to judgment, liable to a local court, but the offense has changed drastically, hasn't it? Now we're talking about anger versus murder. Why does he do that? Because he, Jesus recognizes that where does murder come from? Where does murder come from? It ultimately comes from anger. Anger. And the kind of anger here he's talking about, I mean, it, is a, it, it literally is one who is angry. Uh, uh, so it's a, kind of an ongoing sort of anger towards a person. So it's not just a quick annoyance and then it's like, oh, yeah, uh, forget about that. Uh, move on with life. This is sort of a, a, a dur- durative sort of anger towards someone, towards a brother. Who's a brother? Remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking first and foremost to his followers, the disciples. And even later, what you'll see in Matthew is that Jesus is going to talk about how the disciples are really his family. And if they're his family, those who are following Jesus uh, are his family, then the disciples are brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. So he's first and foremost talking about in the, the community of disciples, we could say the local church, we could think about it like that. Whoever insult, uh, or whoever's angry, right, has a, a seething, ongoing anger with another fellow disciple, with a brother, will be liable to judgment. Essentially, Jesus is saying they've murdered in their heart. To have an ongoing bitterness and anger towards a fellow disciple, that's the heart of murder right there. And so you're liable to judgment. And then he goes on and describes other, uh, it escalates, it escalates. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now, some of your translations, I think NASB says, uh, it's literally whoever says racha to his brother. And that's an Aramaic term. And the Aramaic term essentially meant empty head, right? We would say nimwit or, or something like that, right? Uh, uh, you've got no sense. Uh, You're you're stupid for for thinking that, right? But notice the change here. The change has moved from anger in the heart, and you've got to keep in mind that heart of anger is still there, but now the heart of anger has moved to uh, using words as weapons, to using words as weapons. So it is an insult, right? But it's, uh, it's, you're saying your, your brother, a fellow disciple, you're, you're an idiot, right? You're a, a dimwit. And what does he say? He says that the consequence, since the, the, the offense, we've moved now from in the heart, the heart is still there, but the external action, now we're using words as weapons, the consequence also uh, changes. We'll be liable to the council. Now, the council was the Sanhedrin. It was kind of the Supreme Court, so to speak, of Israel. So we've moved from a local court that would render judgment to now the highest court in the land. So if you insult your brother from a heart of anger, you are insulting, you're calling uh, your, your brother, your fellow disciple, you're essentially trying to murder him with your words, you're liable to the Supreme Court. Now, this is overstatement, right? In the sense that, uh, is Jesus actually thinking, well, uh, in, in his community, someone who insults another is going to go to the Supreme Court? But no, not exactly. But he's, he's trying to emphasize the point that the, the heart of murder is there and the judgment is, in God's eyes, it's the same as murder. It's the same as murder. And then he escalates it one more time. And whoever says, you fool, you fool, 
will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, at first glance, it doesn't seem like, well, that doesn't seem much different than an insult, right? Isn't just saying you're, you're a fool, an insult? Well, yes, but actually what you find in Scripture, whether it's in Proverbs, talking about the wise versus the foolish, or even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to highlight the fool who doesn't listen according to, uh, listen to his words. When you say that someone's a fool, you're saying they're an obstinate rebel to God and deserve his, um, ju- his judgment. You're essentially saying, you're headed to hell, buddy, because you're a fool. That's the connotation of calling someone a fool. But this is a fellow brother in Christ. The heart of anger has now gone to this extreme. And Jesus says, in God's eyes, that's liable to the hell of fire. Right? That's liable to the hell of fire because you've already murdered that person in your heart. You've tried to murder them with your words. That's how God sees this. That's how God sees this. So you can see how Jesus is driving from the external command to not murder. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean I'm not going to kill someone. It means that you've got to deal with the hard issues that are behind it. The hard issues that are behind it. Because in God's eyes, the thoughts that he sees in your mind, whether it's just in your heart or whether you're insulting uh, someone else or damning them to hell with your words, they're worthy of God's judgment. They are worthy of hell. And Jesus draws an implication from this. If that's, if the heart of anger is what murders, that's murder in God's eyes, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? We get an implication, verse 23, so, or therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. So there's an altar in Jerusalem and you're supposed to worship there and only there. So he's talking about, it's kind of, and and there would be a lot of people that would influx into the temple. So it's kind of like you're waiting in this long line, right? You can think about like going through the TSA line at the airport, right? But you're bringing your sacrifice and you're bringing your sacrifice to the altar, But while you're in line, uh, you recognize, oh, that's right. My brother, I have offended. I have sinned against. He has a legitimate uh, uh, claim against me. He has a legitimate claim against me. I think that's what he's talking about. the, The disciple in line has offended this other brother, and that other brother, therefore, has something against the person, the fellow disciple, remember we're talking first and foremost about disciples, Jesus' disciples here, the disciples in line, right? The temple's still standing at this point. So he's in line bringing his sacrifice. And then he remembers, oh, that's right. A fellow disciple, a fellow brother has a legitimate claim against me. I have offended him. I have sinned against him. Maybe it was in terms of words that Jesus just talked about. Maybe it was anger towards that person. Maybe it was an insult or some sort of break in relationship. But what you have to remember is Jesus is speaking in Galilee, in the way north of Israel, about 80 miles away from the temple. So the picture is that this disciple came from 80 miles north in Galilee down to the temple in Jerusalem, and he's standing in the long line, right, ready to bring his sacrifice. He's like right there at the, the altar, and he remembers this. 
He's coming to do a form of worship to express his relationship with God, really. But he remembers this break in relationship with a brother. What are you supposed to do? Leave the gift there. Travel, um, travel back up 80 miles to Galilee, find the brother, work towards reconciliation, travel 80 miles back down, grab your sacrifice, and then sacrifice it. It's extreme. What's the point? The point is this. It's kind of like a little parable, but what's the point? Reconciliation with disciples happens before the forms of worship. Reconciliation with disciples happens before the forms of worship. In other words, God is not going to be pleased with your form of worship that you are doing, in this case, sacrifice. In this case, sacrifice. He's not going to be pleased with that if you have a broken relationship with a brother or sister in Christ. And this has always been the case of how God operates in the scriptures. The vertical, the vertical relationship that I have with God flows out into the horizontal relationships I have with brothers and sisters. And you might try to say, well, yeah, let me maintain my vertical relationship with God, but I have a horrible uh, relationship with my brother or sister in Christ. God's not going to be pleased with that. He wants you to deal with the horizontal before you do the form of worship. This is why when we do communion together, that is an external form of worship, of remembering the gospel, it is inconsistent with the gospel to be intentioned, to have anger, to have bitterness, to have an unreconciled relationship with someone in the same church, and then to try to say, well, yeah, I have an unreconciled relationship. Someone legitimately has something against me. And then to try to do this external form of worship in your vertical relationship with God. So reconciliation with disciples happens before the forms of worship. That's how highly God views this. And then we get another uh, implication. And I would just say this, in both of these situations that we're going to see in the text, this is the acknowledgement of a legitimate offense and sin. It's not just like someone got, um, someone can get angry or think they have an offense against you for the wrong reasons. Like that can happen. And even in that case, you want reconciliation. But what is being talked about here is the person who made, uh, who offended the other person legitimately, that, uh, how, how do you need to reconcile with that? You need to move in that direction. Even, uh, think about it like this. It, normally in conflicts, even with people in church, fellow disciples, even in the same home, usually it's a two-way street, isn't it? Uh, there was sin going both ways in some sort of break in that relationship. But the point that Jesus is saying is here, don't worry about the other person, deal with your side. So if you're 37% responsible for the break in relationship, own up to it and go do what's necessary before the external forms of worship. God, that's, God wants you to deal with that first before you come to the external forms of worship. And then he extends it in a second kind of picture here. We change pictures, so to speak, in verse 25. And he says this, come to terms quickly with your accuser. So now we change, right? We were talking about a brother before. Now we're just talking about an accuser. And they could be the same thing, right? Um, but I think what he's doing, I think what Jesus is doing, I think he's even broadening the circle. In other words, someone could accuse a disciple who's not a disciple, right? Or an unbeliever, right? And what you see here, listen to this, come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you are going with him to court. 
what, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, what's interesting here is it's like a done deal. As soon as this accuser takes the person to the court, it's like automatic that they're convicted. So what does that mean? The disciple is in the wrong. The disciple is in the wrong. And if they go to, they, if they go to court, he's going to be thrown into prison. It's a foregone conclusion. So somehow the disciple is once again guilty of an offense against an accuser, the one who has the, is bringing that accusation. But this time, it could be a fellow disciple, or it could be someone outside of the disciple community. And what is Jesus enjoining the person to do? Literally, make friends. That's, that's what it be. Make friends quickly with your accuser. In other words, this person has a legitimate claim against you. What's the right response? As fast as you can, make it right. Do what you can to make it right with that other person. Reconcile quickly to avoid, even if it's an unbeliever. Now that's the hardest, isn't it? Now, if we're honest, as Christians, we do offend unbelievers. We sin against them. And God sees that. And God knows that. It could be even in terms of murder, right? In the sense of anger uh, or uh, using our words against them. But then uh, you've legitimately offended them. What's the right response? Try to reconcile. Try to reconcile quickly. Lest what happened, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, could this be in terms of a true uh, like human court case? Yes, but I think this is kind of parabolic in the sense that uh, Jesus is pointing to the fact that uh, you're not going to, just because you're a disciple, you're not going to escape God's judgment. In the sense that uh, God's going to hold you accountable for what you do, even with unbelievers, and how you might offend them. Legitimate offense, legitimate sin against them. So if we pull this all together, what is Jesus saying that not murdering from the heart looks like? Not murdering from the heart implies dealing with the anger that's in your heart, and also seeking peace and reconciliation in relationships where you've wronged others. That's what it means to take the command, the Old Testament command, not, do not murder, but God's not just wanting you to not commit the external act of murder. He wants you to deal with the heart, the heart. He wants you to deal with the heart of anger, and he wants you to seek peace and reconciliation in your relationships when you've wronged others. That's what Jesus is calling for, and that's what it means as a disciple to not murder from the heart. So we have some very direct application here. Where do you have an angry heart towards a fellow brother and sister in Christ? Whether that's in this gathering or maybe, you know, with another believer in another gathering, where do you have an angry heart, a bitter heart towards a fellow brother and sister in Christ? Christ is calling you to renounce it and pursue reconciliation where needed. And we need that. As a, as a local church, we are going to, it's just a reality, we're a bunch of sinners yet, this side of heaven, we're going to offend one another. I'm going to offend you. You're going to offend me. I'm actually going to sin against you. I don't want to. It's going to happen. You're going to sin against me. So what do we need to do? We need to reconcile quickly. We need to sort of meet each other on the way in initiating reconciliation with each other. Where is 
Where do you have an angry heart towards a fellow brother or sister in Christ? Pursue reconciliation. Don't wait, even if the other person was legitimately more in the wrong than you. If you wrong them in any way, you initiate. You initiate. And part of that is to be ready to admit when you have wronged someone else and to initiate and pursue reconciliation as soon as possible. And that's hard, isn't it? It's very hard to admit I have wronged someone else. Have you ever tried to apologize and you, you deflect and you say, well, I, you know, I didn't mean to do this or I didn't mean to do that, rather than just owning up to it and saying, I was wrong, I sinned against you, I am sorry, will you please forgive me and can we have a reconciled relationship? That is hard to do, but that is what disciples do. Those who have the Spirit of God indwelling their hearts because they're members of the new covenant to not murder from the heart. So we've seen what it looks like to not murder from the heart. Let's talk about what does it mean to not commit adultery from the heart? To not commit adultery from the heart. Verse 27. You have heard, so now we've got the teaching, the scribes and Pharisees teaching side again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's the letter of the law. You shall not commit adultery. But Jesus contrasts. Verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks or is looking at a woman with lustful intent in order to desire her sexually, that's the idea, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, uh, the command, you could literally, uh, in uh, an external sense, not commit adultery, but what is Jesus saying? Adultery begins in the heart. Even the 10th commandment Uh, talks about coveting your neighbor's wife, right? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So even the original law was driving you back to the heart of sexual sin, sexual immorality, adultery begins in the heart. That's how God sees it. That's how God sees it. So even if you've not actually physically committed the act of adultery, God sees it as adultery when, and the idea here is an intentional look, uh, intentional gazing in order to stir up lust, in order to desire the woman um, or the man um, sexually. That is the idea. And when that happens, God sees that as adultery in the heart. And then Jesus escalates it. He says some very shocking things. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, what is Jesus saying? Notice that he has two conditional statements, and they, the first one begins, if your right hand causes you to sin... And the second one says, and if your, uh, sorry, your right eye causes you to sin is the first one. And the second one is, if your right hand causes you to sin. So it's referring back to the eye that lusts and the hand that would act on that lust, right? That's what he's referring to. But notice what he's saying there. Is it true that the eye causes you to sin? Is it true that your right hand causes you to sin? Is that actually true? No, he just said it wasn't. It begins in the heart. So what is he doing? Well, what Jesus is doing here, he's presenting something as true for the sake of argument. If it were true 
that the eye that lusts caused you to sin rather than the heart, if it were true that the external eye caused you to sin, or if it were true that the, your right hand was really the, the external right hand was actually the thing that caused you to sin, then what would be the appropriate course of action? The appropriate course of action would be to grab a screwdriver and drive it into your eye and pluck your eye out. Why? Because if a something external on your body was causing you to sin, something that would damn you to hell, it would be better to enter life maimed than it would be to be condemned to hell. Now, see the seriousness of the sin that Jesus is talking about. He is saying that, uh, that adultery, adultery from the heart, is worthy of God's judgment. If your right eye, if your external eye actually caused you to sin, the appropriate response would be to pluck out your eye. If your hand was actually the thing that was causing you to sin rather than your heart, the appropriate response would be to lay your hand and grab a hacksaw and cut it off. But we know that, and why would that be the appropriate response? Because if that's the thing that's causing you to sin, and you can, you can get rid of it to avoid God's judgment, you'd better do it. You'd better do it. But we know that it's not the external eye or the external hand that causes you to sin. It's the heart. Which, if you're following the logic, what does that mean? It means if you could possibly do it, you would need to tear out your heart where sin dwells to escape God's judgment. And you're like, I can't do that. I do that, I die. Well, that's what Jesus is driving us to, right? There is a promise in the Old Testament of dealing with the heart. It's called circumcision of the heart. It's called Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 in the New Covenant, where the, the heart of stone is taken out by God himself and replaced with a heart of flesh. That's conversion, that's conversion where the heart is changed in such a fundamental way that the desires are changed in a radical way. Which is, once is, drives, us to, uh, drives disciples to radicalness in dealing with the sin in the heart, just like the heart of anger. We deal with the heart of lust with radical measures. That's what Jesus talking about, gouging out an eye or cutting off a hand. Those are radical measures. You need to take radical measures as a disciple to deal with the sin in your heart because otherwise it's going to lead you to damnation. But there's also a promise of hope here. There's also a promise of hope. The reality is there is that power available that God, if you're in Christ, if you've repented from allegiance to sin and self and you've turned to him and say, I can't do it, I can't change my heart, but God can and God does through the new covenant. God has through Jesus Christ and uh, through his sacrifice, he has purchased the Holy Spirit who can cause you to obey and to kill lustful thoughts from the heart. So it's at once talking about radicalness and dealing with the sin in your heart, capturing those thoughts, dealing with and murdering those thoughts that arise in your heart through the power of the Spirit. It's a both and. Lusting is adultery in God's eyes and worthy of hell. And the reality is we have a significant fight in our culture because of the incredible proliferation of pornography and sensuality. 
And it's true, the, the sitting in front of the computer screen and looking and gazing, that is adultery in God's eyes and it is worthy of hell. And what will happen if you continue on in that path, it'll harden your heart and it will drive you to damnation. So what do you need to do? If you are a Christian and you're, you're trapped in that, and statistics say that prob- probability of there are some in this room who have been trapped or are trapped in that cycle, what do you need to do? What do you need to do? Don't just fight externally. Don't just fight externally. Do fight externally, but don't just fight externally. Put the blockers on the browsers. Do the accountability software and the accountability partners. Do those things, but where you need to drive it back to is your heart. You need to desire Christ more than you desire sin. And that is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Fight internally by the power of God's Spirit through the new covenant. You don't have to sin anymore if you are in Christ. You don't have to look at another image. You don't have to look or lust at another man or woman because of the reality of the new covenant that Christ has called you to. Fight using all means at your disposal. If you are struggling in this way, I want to call you personally today. Confess your sin to someone who's here, who's had victory in this area. Set up a, a, a mutual accountability and discipleship with that person, someone who can help you grow. Seek counsel and accountability. Desperately fight. Use any means at your disposal because otherwise it is nothing to toy around with. It will destroy you. And then as you fight hard, desperately depend on the Holy Spirit to make those actions good. Come talk to me after. If you need to talk, if anyone here needs to talk about it, that is what needs to happen. We need to lean into the body to help us deal with even these vicious sins in our hearts that will destroy us unless we deal with them radically. So we've seen what not murdering from the heart means. We've seen what not committing adultery from the heart means. Finally, let's deal with divorce from the heart. Divorce from the heart. Verses 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, let me give you a little bit of background before we go farther. What's he talking about? Well, he's referencing uh, or alluding to, at the least, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and a couple other passages as well. But go ahead and turn back to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and I want to read this for you. Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she had been defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. So that's kind of the base um, text in Deuteronomy that Jesus is somewhat alluding to. And 
Uh, a couple things to notice about the Deuteronomy 24 text. Does it say, does it command anyone to divorce? No, it actually doesn't. It gives a situation, if this happens, then do this. But what had happened in uh, that Jesus' day is because of the language like uh, something indecent in the wife, this uh, was subject to abuse. And what tended to happen is what is said here, what Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That is the essential pr uh, procedure for divorce, even in the Old Testament. The certificate of divorce would say, uh, I'm renouncing you as my wife, and you're also free to remarry someone else. That's essentially what the certificate of divorce would say. But you can see, if you just held that the Old Testament sa said uh, that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, that's the procedure, and that's all you need to know about divorce, well, that's subject to a lot of abuse, isn't it? A lot of abuse. In fact, you can, uh, from extra-biblical literature, we can find out that in Jesus' day, it was so easy. All, uh, a husband, in a Jewish culture, only the husband could initiate divorce. And uh, if basically anything, he found any fault with his wife, he could write her certificate of divorce and divorce his wife. Easy as that. That's what the culture is. And so even Jesus' day, divorce was easy. It was very, very, very easy. And, very, and it was invoked for a very trivial trivial matters. We don't know anything about that, do we? No, this is highly relevant to our day. And what you have to recognize, back to Matthew 5, is it's very interesting. In a lot of translations, they don't put a conjunction at the beginning of verse 31. So like in the ESV, it just says, it was said, also said. However, in the original, there is a conjunction there and big doors swing on little hinges. And what that conjunction means is that Jesus is actually tying what he's saying here about divorce with what he just said about adultery. And that's, you can understand that if adultery, or if, if, if divorce is easy, and uh, I want another gal, right? Uh, that, that's the heart of lust speaking, right? The heart of adultery speaking. And if uh, if uh, a divorce is easy, then technically, in a technical sense, you could divorce your wife really easily, get the wife you were wanting, and then uh, and, and go on from there. And technically, you haven't committed adultery. That's the sort of culture that Jesus is speaking to. And what does he say to it? Verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, remember a couple things as we go through this. These two verses were the hardest for me to go through this week because it's very terse, right? He just says it, and then he goes on. And it's like, whoa, what are you doing? Well, a couple things. We already know from the section on anger and the section on lust that Jesus is kind of speaking somewhat hyperbolically. And what I mean by that is he's emphasizing uh, something very strongly to make a point. So there's, we know in context that's what's going on, right? Um, Jesus' overall point is very clear. Actually, go ahead and turn over uh, to Matthew 19, because in Matthew 19, this situation comes up again, and Jesus actually talks a little bit more about it and kind of gives an insight into what he is thinking when he says what he says in Matthew 5. So let's look at that really quickly. 
Matthew 19, uh, 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now you can see the distortion of their teaching. Moses didn't command uh, a divorce. It was permitted, but it wasn't commanded. There's a difference there, and Jesus will say that. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So what can we say from that? What is Jesus' standpoint on marriage? Well, he doesn't just look at the law, the letter of the law, he goes back to the beginning. What was God's plan and purpose for marriage? It was to be one man and one woman to become one flesh in a covenant relationship for life. There was never supposed to be divorce in God's original plan for marriage. And so that's the fundamental principle to always go back to when you're talking about marriage, uh, divorce, and remarriage. What is marriage designed to be? What is marriage designed to be? Jesus is trying to reclaim a high view of marriage for a society that viewed marriage trivially and divorce trivially. And Jesus' overall point is clear. Marriage is designed to be for life. That is the default. Marriage is designed to be for life. And I will say one more thing before we uh, land on this first. This isn't the only text on divorce and remarriage in the Bible. There's more. But what is Jesus saying here? Everyone who commits divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality. What is that? Well, sexual immorality is anything that breaks uh, God's design for sex designed within marriage, between one, uh, the, the husband and a wife. Anything outside of that, that's sexual immorality. Anything outside of that, that's sexual immorality. Even there, there's a lot of wisdom to, to apply. But the point is, whoever divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality. So what he's speaking to here is a disciple who would potentially, not because of sexual immorality, divorce his wife in a frivolous way, what does he say? He makes her commit adultery. Now, what does he mean by that? Adultery always requires three partners, right? So who's the third partner here? I think the best solution is that the third partner would be the new husband, right? Because the certificate of divorce frees the wife uh, from that, that first husband, and then she's free to remarry, that's what it was in that culture, that, that other guy. And that would often probably happen because of security. A woman had no security uh, on her own in that culture. What is he, it's not, who's God indicting here? Who's Jesus indicting here? He's indicting the first husband. He's indicting the disciple or the proposed disciple who would make a frivolous divorce. What is he essentially doing? Well, if from God's eyes and the, 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 the man's vantage point uh, that he shouldn't be doing this, then what is he really doing then? He's essentially forcing his wife into an adulterous relationship, which is just so twisted. 
what it shows is that such one that would do such a thing, he, would, he doesn't love his wife. And uh, she whom he should love, uh, she, he should love and be jealous for is casually handed over to the embrace of another man. What should have been a grave offense and issue of jealousy on his part, instead for him, he just forces her into it. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. And that's what he says, that if a potential disciple is just going to have a frivolous divorce, not on the basis of sexual immorality, you're essentially, from God's vantage point, forcing her into an adulterous relationship. And then there's a kind of a corresponding case at the end of verse 32. And, so this is kind of a, it's similar, but it's, it's a little bit different. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, is he talking about, I think, uh, what he's talking about here, he's talking about another frivolous divorce. Now, like I said, the Jewish guy could, uh, he was the only one that could initiate a divorce. But you can imagine, because divorce was so easy, and in fact, there's extra biblical literature to support this, that a wife could kind of manipulate the situation to cause a divorce if she wanted to. Uh, so there was that sort of situation, potentially. Uh, but what's the, what's the point here? What's the point? It's a frivolous divorce, and he's talking to another disciple, and he's saying, okay, disciple, you, you come across a, uh, a divorced woman, you want to marry her, and Jesus says, black and white, he commits adultery. Now, there can be nuance. There's other scriptures that talk about that, there, well, what if it's a legitimate divorce and all of that? But let me, let me frame it this way. Maybe because he's talking to disciples, imagine this scenario. Let's suppose someone, God forbid, in this church uh, decided to divorce his wife for a frivolous reason. So he decides to divorce his wife for a frivolous reason. She's probably a disciple. He's a disciple, right? And then you've got another person in the same church who's like, well, I'll just go ahead and marry that woman. That's not treating marriage high, not because it's legitimate or not legitimate divorce to begin with, but because, I mean, if it's a frivolous divorce... That, that second disciple is not going to want that, uh, to, to engage in that relationship. He shouldn't. What he should want is for there to be reconciliation and remarriage between the first two. That's the idea. So, so the, the, the default, what Jesus is saying, the default should be to not marry a divorced woman. Isn't that true? And the default should be to not marry a divorced woman. There are cases when... Uh, you know, divorce is permissible, and when remarriage is permissible, but the goal should be, that's not where you start from. You start from a high view of marriage. You start from a high view of marriage, and if you have a high view of marriage, and you have a disciple claiming to be a disciple who's divorced his wife in a frivolous way, uh, and, and you just come along and say, well, great, she's free now. I can just go after her, right? That's the heart of lust again. That's the heart of adultery rather than but wait a minute, what about that original marriage? Is there a way for them to be reconciled, to come back together? Paul speaks to this issue a little bit in 1 Corinthians 7. Let me take you there just to give you another place to look at and think about later. But I actually think he's somewhat referencing this text, or at least Jesus' teaching on divorce. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Now here, Paul is talking to believers in Corinth. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 7, 10. 
to the married, I give this charge. Now, he says this weird parenthetical statement, not I, but the Lord. And he just said he's giving it, but he said, not I, but the Lord. What's he talking about? He's referencing Jesus' teaching on divorce. That's what I think that phrase means. And what does it say? The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried. Implication, she's unmarried once she's separated. Or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. It's the same thing that's being talked about in, first, or in Matthew 5, that if there's been a frivolous divorce, what's the right response? The right response should be reconciliation, first and foremost, not someone just sweeping in, say, great, she's free now, I can come grab her. That is what Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 5. So how do we apply this? Here's the point. Marriage and divorce are not trivial. They are not trivial. When we live in a culture and breathe a culture where it is trivial, but they are not in God's eyes. The heart should be not, how can I get a divorce? The heart should be, how can I keep the marriage together if possible? Not for your own happiness, first and foremost, but because of God's glory. That's why God created marriage first and foremost, for his glory, to picture his relationship with his people. And you think about Israel in the Old Testament and uh, how adulterous and unfaithful Israel was and how God went after her again and again, tried to maintain the relationship. And that translates to the picture of that relationship with God and his people to marriage. Keep the marriage together if possible. And what does that mean then? If you want to keep the marriage together, then you not merely need to be not divorcing, but you also need to be continually working on strengthening your marriage, to continually strengthen your marriage, to not drift. It's easy to drift, isn't it? It's easy to drift apart. It takes work to keep strengthening and building a deeper marriage. Like I said earlier, there are conditions where it, sin is messy. That's the kind of implication of all this. Uh, the only reason there's divorce in the world is there's sin in the world. The only reason there's divorces in general is because of sin. Whenever you have a divorce, sin was caused. Not, because, not that every divorce is sinful, but you know when you have a divorce, there was sin somewhere along the line. And sin makes things very, very messy. So a lot of these situations is a lot of wisdom working through what would please God the most. There are conditions where divorce is legitimate, but these are a last resort because of how highly and God and Jesus view and value marriage. So we've seen what not murdering from the heart looks like. We've seen not, what not committing adultery from the heart looks like, and we've seen what divorce or marriage from the heart looks like. And all of this, again, is fueled by the Spirit of God, being a new covenant believer, following Christ, and having the Spirit help you to obey God's law. Obey God's law concerning murder, adultery, and divorce from the heart. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your teaching. It is um, difficult. It is hard. You have a high standard and one that we could not meet on our own strength. But we thank you that because we're in you, Lord Jesus, because of faith, repenting and entrusting ourselves to you, you count us as righteous 
and you also give us your spirit to grow in righteousness. Help us to grow. Help us to kill any heart of anger. Help us to be a people who are at peace and reconciled with each other. Help us to deal with any and kill any lustful thoughts in our hearts. And help us to hold marriage highly in a world that doesn't. And Lord, to honor you and to honor the gospel through that. Lord, give us wisdom as we seek to apply these things to our lives and help us to help one another. I pray that we would come alongside one another, encourage one another, challenge one another, and I pray that you would grow us, that we, you might be honored, that you, Christ, might be honored, and that you, Father, might be honored. Pray these things and ask them in the name of Christ. Amen.